Hi there, it's Marla at Narrate. On Christmas Eve, Adam wrapped up the Mother Mary series by asking, what did Mary get right? What part of her story is worth repeating, and how can we apply that to our life? Enjoy! Uh, So, to me, the the danger of the Christmas story is that we become so familiar with it that we're no longer impacted by it. And I guess this morning, uh, the the question I want to ask is, in all of its cuteness and all of its awesomeness of those kids and that story and everything that Christmas is about... Uh, what, what, what does it look like to like, live that? And, and if we were to point out like, what, what part of that matters and why does it matter for, for my life today, that's kind of what I want to get after here this morning, just or this afternoon, for just a little, little bit. But I think it starts by asking this question of, like, what, what, did, what did Mary get right? What did Mary get <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, seriously, I mean, if, again, if, if we were to live this, if we were going to do this, like, what, what part of her story is worth repeating? And, and here's where I think it's important to recognize that that story comes from a larger story known as the Gospel of Luke. We have four Gospels, four books that predominantly uh, tell us about Jesus' life and teaching. Luke w- was a Westerner by our standards. Luke thought uh, left to right. He liked chronology. Eastern thinkers don't so much care about that. And Luke tells us at the very beginning of his story that he set out to write this orderly or chronological account so that we can appreciate Jesus and the significance of this day. And I guess the question that I want to ask is, so so why does it matter? And one way I think to get after that is through contrast. Oftentimes what storytellers do is they put consecutive incidents next to each other and it's the contrast of them that really draws the story out. And what we see uh, is that, so what we just read, here's some some mad art skill, are you ready for this? Um, We have this girl Mary, clearly a woman, uh, and she is paid a visit by a guy named Gabriel, who is an angel, and I'm sure not that small, but you get the point. But in the original narrative, uh, before that, right before that, uh, we, we have another story. And it involves a guy named Zechariah, uh, who, who's an old guy. We'll just give him that. He's also a priest. We'll talk a little bit more about that. He has a wife. Uh, her, her name is Elizabeth. She's very tall. Um, and, and then Gabriel pays them a visit as well. And the story with Zechariah, t- to me, gets fascinating because Zechariah, as I already said, was a priest. He, in fact, was the son of a priest. He, he was the grandson of a priest. He was the great-grandson of a priest. Uh, for those of you Seinfeld fans, his mother was a mother, right? Like, that's kind of the idea with Zechariah's priesthood goes way back. And, in fact, he doubled down on that heritage because he married a woman named Elizabeth who was the daughter of a priest. And while daughters weren't allowed to be priests or women in that culture... He, he, he continued to marry into that type of stream. Now, they had one particular problem, and it was a problem especially in their culture. And the problem was they were, uh, they were getting up in years. That's not the problem, though you and I may be feeling that lately. Uh, the bigger problem was that they didn't have kids. And in our culture, we respect that. We see that as a choice. We also see sometimes that as a decision out of a couple or a woman or a man's control. Their culture didn't see it that way. And for Elizabeth to not have kids would have been a massive indictment of the way God thinks about her. The culture would have thought that, th- that her not having kids w- reflected a God who was generally mad at her or just more generally rejecting her. So she lived under this cloud of religious shame. The other thing about that is that in this culture, there, there was no such thing as a social security system. May not be for us either for much longer. Uh, there, there, there's no such thing as Roth IRAs. There, there, there's no such thing as owning some, some rentals and then drawing income off of that when you can't work anymore. What, the option they had, your security for when you were no longer able to support yourself, was your kids. 
and, and the trust that your kids would provide for you, which means that if you're like Zechariah and Elizabeth and you don't have kids, things are getting a little dicey as you start getting older and older. Well, what the story tells us is that this angel Gabriel paid Zechariah a visit while he was serving in the temple and said to him, hey, just so you know, God feels your plight, like he's aware of your situation, and I'm here to tell you that, that he's going to do something about it. In fact, your wife Elizabeth is going to be found to be with child. And Zechariah, remember, he's, he's an older dude, goes, uh, not sure how this can be. I have no access to pills, maybe. I, I'm not sure. I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Like, this just isn't possible. Gabriel's not impressed. In fact, Gabriel says, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Gabriel just plays the badge. He goes on to say, and now you will be silent and will be able to speak until the day, will not be able to speak until the day this happens because you do not believe my words which come true at their appointed time. So if we're going to ask this question, what did Mary get right? I, I think there's another question, and that is, what did Zechariah get wrong? Let's just call him Z. Because I think we can all agree, like, wow, that, that seems a bit harsh, doesn't it? I mean, it was just a question after all, and I thought this God uh, was approachable. But there is some context here, and I think that to play with this a little bit can be helpful. Have you ever, uh, have you ever felt that, that, that emotional feeling, some would call it shame, some would call it self-hatred, uh, where, where you feel like you're just on the cusp of being found out and it won't be pretty when you are? Like, like have, have, have you ever had that sense that, that underneath all of the pretty layers that you put on, uh, you're not all that together likable of a person? And when your friends find that out, everything's going to come crashing down. You ever had that, that sensation that, that these people who admire you, maybe coworkers, maybe your team, maybe classmates, that they're about to discover that you're not who they think you are, and when they do, everything is going to come crashing down. Psychiatrists, uh, they call this imposter syndrome. It often follows some semblance of success. It, athletes deal with it. Business people deal with it. Uh, people in strong relationships deal with it. And the idea is this. I'm not as good as I've somehow convinced them I am. And when, I, when they figure it out, it's going to hurt. In fact, I once worked with a retired therapist who spent his whole career doing therapy. And he, he went on to tell me that the, that the driving idea that he thinks all of us deal with in our culture is simply this. If you really knew me, you wouldn't like me. See, it seems like part of what is going on here for Zechariah is that very thing. I had this happen this last uh, Monday. Uh, the tricky thing about being a pastor for a living is you quickly realize that you're not all that together likable, and yet it's your job to convince people that you are. So I was at the Parrot this last Monday, and my, my family, we, we did this thing where we decided rather than do the Target candy thing, we were going to give each of our three boys five bucks to spend on each other for their stockings. I know not a ton, but that was part of the design, that they could spend five bucks on one another to buy chocolate for the Parrot, and that would be the stocking candy. I, I like the idea of local. I like the idea of quality over quantity. I like the Parrot. It's just it's a great part of Helena. And so last Saturday, while the band was practicing, we knocked out two of those purchases, but JR was at practice, so we didn't get to make the third. And so on Monday... Uh, Teresa was working, my wife was working, and so uh, we needed to go for a walk because we've also committed to this thing called dog. We'll talk about that. So we got to take the dog for a walk, and we live downtown, so we thought, well, we'll just, let's walk down to the Parrot. We arrived at the Parrot, and uh, I mean, let's just be honest, it's, it's, it's an institution, it's awesome, we, we, we love it. And we got outside the, the Parrot, and there's a whole conversation that has to happen because there's four of us and one dog, which means one of us and one dog is staying outside, and so we had to figure that one out. We got inside, never mind that only one of us was making a purchase, but we had to talk through that as well. Like, why do we all have to go in here? So we got, in, we got inside the parrot, and 
I mean, it's, it's December for crying out loud. There, there might be 400 people in line, right? We got in and we were second in line. So it was like we hit the parrot lottery. There were two people waiting to pay and that one, two people working. One was helping the people who were getting ready to pay. One was uh, kind of walking around behind the counter, clearly stressed out. And it had been a, a hard season. And I'm sure it's a, it's a bit of a tricky uh, season for them. But still I'm thinking we're, we're too deep in line. I mean, it, it doesn't matter how bad it gets. It can't possibly get that bad. As we're standing there, several minutes passed. We've, I quickly realized like, no, it's, it's been maybe five minutes and I've not moved yet. And then uh, the door opens and in walks this, I'm going to guess, 75-year-old guy. He's, he's, he's actually a pretty tall guy, looked like in pretty good shape. He walks in. He stood in line behind uh, one of my boys. And then he stood there for about three seconds. And he's like, excuse me, boys. And he walked directly in front of us and behind the lady who was in front of us in line. And he just kind of kept going. And I was kind of tracking him like, you're not taking cuts. But, but it looked like, I mean, he just kind of kept going. And I'm like, maybe he's going to order a bowl of chili or maybe he owns the place. I mean, that was just kind of the vibe that he walked in with. And he kind of disappeared. And then we continued to stand there. And you remember on Monday, it feels like a, a hundred years ago, it was like 47 degrees. You remember that? So it was one of those days where it's too cold to leave the house without a coat. Uh, but then when you get inside a place like Costco or the Parrot and you're wearing a coat, suddenly you're pitting out and sweating and you're like, do I take the coat off? But then I might lose my gloves. And right, there's this whole thing that we have to do. So I'm, I'm now in that state where I'm sweating. I'm standing in line. I'm not all that comfortable. It's Monday. I'm not very friendly on Mondays. Finally, or any day for that matter, finally... Uh, the, the lady said, okay, who's next? And I'm still not sure how he got there. But in that moment, my 75-year-old friend was in the very front of the line and he said, oh, that's me. And the lady in front of me, she like lurched toward him. She, she's, I'm guessing, 50 or 60 something. And you could tell she was trying to say something and I was, I was ready to tackle. <laughs> and, and being a peacemaker, because that's my job, is I'm supposed to be a peacemaker, I just leaned over his shoulder. I was like, that guy totally just took cuts in front of us. <laughs> and we never made eye contact, but we had this whole conversation about how frustrated we both were. And while we were, like, licking our wounds, the guy just, he just started ordering. And he ordered $200 worth of chocolate. In three separate boxes, all gift-wrapped, please. He literally finished his order and then went over and sat at the soda counter, took off his coat and ordered himself a root beer. So now, I, I, you know, I mean, this, this is frustrating. Next thing I know, I look over and now the dog is in the parrot. The, the, the son holding the dog is not in the parrot. The, the dog has made his way inside the screen door. The son is talking to me through the screen door. I'm going, dude, I can't talk to you through the screen door, but it'd be great if you could get the dog out of the parrot. There's that stimulation going on. And then the door opens again and in walks Cousin Rich. Now, you don't know Cousin Rich. Maybe you do, but I know, cousin, I know him as Cousin Rich. He's, a very, he's the cousin of a very good friend of mine. And he's the type of guy that I see a couple times a year, really like him, get the sense that he used to like me. But we see each other a couple times a year. And so now I'm realizing, like, me and Cousin Rich and the boys, we're going to do Christmas right here standing in line at the parrot. <sighs> then, door opens again. Lady walks in. She stops in line behind Cousin Rich. She's standing there for just a moment. And then she says, excuse me. And she does the same thing. She just, which I'm now realizing it's a trend. Let's say it's just part of what happens there. She goes in front of all of us. She goes over to my right. But she didn't disappear. She stayed right on my right. I watched the lady in front of me. She started boxing out. Like she, she got wide and she's like, this is not happening. I, I started playing like Champ Bailey, you know, the really good DBs who can play the run in the pass all at the same time. Cause I got to talk to cousin Rich and convince him that I'm still a likable person, but I got to keep my eye on her and I'm doing this thing. And I couldn't take it anymore. Cause I could feel I was failing at the, the whole, like keep my eye on her. And so at one point I just leaned over to her and I said, Hey, just so you know, we're all in line ahead of you. 
She was not impressed. She, my, my eyes are bad. That's why I'm saying, okay, okay. And I don't blame her for not being impressed at all. Finally, of course, we, we made it to the front of line. And, and I was walking out the door. And as I was walking out the door, uh, the first thought that occurred to me was, well, Cousin Rich doesn't like me anymore. Like, do you know that feeling when you, when you fail yourself and your own values? I guess what I want to suggest is that's what Zechariah had going on when we think of this story. Like, think of who was Zechariah? He was a priest. He was a son of a priest. He's the grandson of a priest. He was married to a priest, which means, like, he decorated his house with priest stuff. Like, that's who he was. It's what he knew. He hung out with priests. He, he, he went to the temple. That's what he was. He, and here's what I want to point out, he looked the part of what? Like, when you look at Zechariah, what do you expect him to be able to do? We call it belief, and unfortunately in our culture, belief is this intellectual thing. We might better call it trust. Wouldn't you expect Zechariah to have the capacity, not saying it's easy, but the expectation would be that he trusts God. What if Zechariah looked the part, but was no longer the part? You know what I mean? And then there's Mary, and here's the contrast. There's this 13-year-old girl, you know, and... 13-year-old girls are awesome because they can tackle the world. They're up for anything. They're just full of optimism and idealism and like, we're going to go for this. And the angel shows up and says to Mary, like, hey, Mary, do you want to give birth to the Messiah? And she's like, well, yeah, that sounds great. Never mind that no one sits pointing out to her like, hey, did you realize that if you, if you say yes to this, you're going to be a 13-year-old girl who's pregnant but a virgin. And you're going to have to somehow sell that to your parents. And if you live through that, then you get to go talk to your fiancé who's waiting for you and tell him, uh, hey, Joseph, good news and bad news. Good news is, um, bad news is, um, I don't know what it is. I'm pregnant and it's not yours, right? Like that's what she got to deliver. And yet, well, think of this. She she was a 13 year old, nobody from nowhere. She's from a place called Nazareth. Think maybe Eureka. She was from a blue collar town. She was a nobody from nowhere. She didn't have any of, she, she was a lower class family. Her dad built things from rock for a living. The word is tecton. We often think carpenter probably meant worked with rock. He was rugged. He was tough. They were lower class. She didn't look the part of anything. The clothes she was wearing were probably the only clothes she owned. And yet Gabriel shows up to Mary and is like, hey, Mary, would you like to do this thing? And she's like, yeah. What, what if... What if what the story is telling us is Zechariah, uh, he came up to bat in the bottom of the ninth inning with the bases loaded and two outs and down by a run, and he whiffed. And Mary, she, she, she got to the free throw line, if you prefer, with one second left on the clock and down by a couple points, and she swished him. And what if part of the warning of this story for all of us is it's really easy to drift from the heart and attitude of the 13-year-old girl who, who just wants to trust God to becoming the person who, and I don't, I don't think this story is trying to be especially hard on Zechariah so much as to say, we can all drift from being the 13-year-old who just trusts to being the religious person who's really not all that interested in trust but is very interested in the perception of trust. And I don't see that as like a bony finger pointing at anybody other than myself and yourself if you take a conversation with God to be a part of your life at all. What if the warning is we're all prone to drift from being far more interested in perception than the real thing? And what if the story on Christmas is this God going, listen, I will not relegate myself or bind myself to a system that's not really interested in trusting me. Like, I'm interested, what if the currency of God is trust? 
And if he's got to go way north to Nazareth to find this peasant nobody from nowhere, that's what he can do. What if something like this, reading your Bible, praying, however it is you give expression to to trying to follow or following God, what if any of that, any of it, is only valuable to the degree that it actually encourages us to, to know God better so that we can more effectively trust him? Like, what if this isn't value valuable in and of itself, but it's a means to the end called trust? See, on Christmas, we celebrate the birth of the most important human who's ever lived, and, and I think that's true even if he wasn't God. You'd have a hard time arguing with even just a secular historian and saying that anybody has had a greater impact on human civilization than Jesus. Many of the things we take for granted, like valuing people and valuing the poor and and giving people education, no matter what their socioeconomic status is, those are all ideas that you don't get from reading the, the Greek and Roman classics. Jesus, that's, that's the pivot point of human history. Many of us believe that he wasn't just the greatest person ever, but that he was also the incarnate. He was God in the flesh. He was somehow both. That he did, in fact, die on the cross. That he did, in fact, raise. And he is, in fact, communicating to us that God is in the business of putting things back together through a people. In some sense, Christmas then reminds us that God is perfectly capable of working in spite of us. That grace drives the story, not our merit. But what if it's also this reminder that God is like a searchlight. And the currency that he counts is one of genuine trust. And the warning is, for guys like me and maybe people like you, if you're not careful, you just become satisfied being perceived as one, one, someone who trusts. See, I alluded earlier to this, um, this dog that we have, this puppy. Uh, his, his name is Yachty, named after the greatest catcher in Major League Baseball. Uh, but he's created a picture for me that's actually really challenged me, and as I was thinking about this week, has really, really been helpful. Uh, see, the reality is, is when it's time for him to go out in the backyard, uh, he's got a bell on the doorknob because, because it's a sophisticated system. And so he rings the bell, and he goes out on the doorknob. But there is no, there is no doggy door. There, there's nothing like that. What stuck out to me is once he's in the backyard, he really has no control over ceasing to be in the backyard, if you know what I mean. I mean, he could bark. Fortunately, he doesn't. He could scratch at the door. Fortunately, he doesn't do that. Sometimes I stand at the door and wait for him, and sometimes, you know, you take two minutes, and sometimes you're back a half an hour later, and sometimes it's five degrees. But what challenges me is when you get to the door, and he's ready to come in, he's just standing there, just staring at the door, just knowing full well that they'll be back. I don't know when, and I can't control any of it, but that's okay, because they'll be back. (laughs) I can see him before he can see me, and it's this really challenging picture, and I... I think it's a lot like Mary. And I wonder, what if this Christmas we really leaned into the deeper meaning of it and went, okay, so what what door is God asking you to stare at? What what door are you staring at? Maybe it's a medical condition. Maybe it's a relational status. Maybe you're worried sick about a son or a daughter. Maybe it's a vocation that you're not sure that you can stay in for much longer. Maybe it's an addiction But what if the story and the contrast provided in the story is one that just challenges you to go like, okay, so what's the door? And what what would happen if you were to lean into it and begin to affirm to God, God, I, I trust you. Which, by the way, doesn't mean 
that I know what the outcome is going to be. Mary didn't necessarily know any of the outcomes. It just means, okay, I'm going to make myself vulnerable to what I know of your character. I don't know, is it, a, is it a medical thing? Is it a financial thing? Is it a relational thing? Listen uh, to, to the, what, what Jesus says and what I think was, uh, seems to be his, his, his greatest teaching. Listen to Matthew 6. Uh, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about your clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon of all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. That is how God clothes the grass of the field which are here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire. Will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. So why do you worry saying, what, do we, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. What's the door? And what if you step into Christmas this year by just being resolute and going, Okay, Lord, I'll stare at the door. Jesus, uh, thanks for Christmas. Thanks, God, that in all of your vulnerability, you, you became a human. Thanks, Jesus, for, for your self-giving love and, and the way that your very birth puts that on display. Thanks. Thanks that you count in the currency of trust, God. That you don't expect to us to, to play a charade, that you don't expect us to, to play any kind of game, but to find tools and resources that encourage us to strengthen our understanding of your character and to grow in our trust of who you are. And thanks, God, for this thing called surrender. Uh, that ultimately we get to choose whether or not we're going to try to control everything or become familiar with your character and find a way to trust you. Jesus, we love you. Amen. If you would like to engage further with Narrate Church, you can find contact information online www.narratechurch.org We would love to hear from you.